Now, today we are in our series, Be Holy, and uh, Leviticus 23 will be our passage today. And so I'll give you time to open up there at the moment. Leviticus chapter 23. As we go into today, we are learning some stuff about Israel that we can kind of see as very parallel to us in some ways. You know, we, when we learn about Israel, we see that they are a, in an in-between place right now. They're a pilgrim people. They're free from Egypt. They're on their way to a promised space. That promised space is currently occupied by another place, another group that's going to be judged one day by the Lord. And then there'll be a point where they can settle in that place. It's, it, there's a lot of parallels between the church and the story of Israel, even just in those small things. In the concept of being holy, Marguerite took us through chapter 19 last week. And uh, she got the punchline of the series. Verse 2, be holy as I am holy. And uh, in God's arena, holiness means to be separate and distinct. And when we understand God being holy, we understand that He is the distinct of the distinct. He is a cut above all that we know, all that we can possibly imagine. He is completely unlike anyone or anything. And uh, that, that kind of re- that's why we reflect prayers like uh, Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel. You know, there is no one holy like our God. There's no one like you, God. And in response to his qualities, we're supposed to be separate also. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're supposed to be separate and we're supposed to be distinct. That doesn't mean hiding away somewhere in, in, in a place and being withdrawn, but it does mean being in the world and being separate from the world at the same time, being distinct in the world around us. In chapter 19, we saw a number of ways that sort of holiness can play out in the lives of believers. Today's passage, we're about to see how even our use of time and energy can be subject to the holiness spectrum of the Lord here today. So uh, we're going to read segments of chapter 23 and uh, look at this. This is actually quite exciting stuff when you ex- uh, explore it. So we're just going to look at a few passages today. So we'll start at verse 1 and, um, and we'll just read through a few parts here. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed festivals. The appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a day of Sabbath rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work wherever you live. It is a Sabbath to the Lord. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Festival of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread without, made without yeast. On the first day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. For seven days, present a food offering to the Lord and on the seventh day, hold a sacred assembly and do no regular work. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land I am going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest the sheaf of the first grain you harvest. 
It is a way, he is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. From the day after the Sabbath, the day you bought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. Count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath and then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two tenths of an ephah of the finest flour, baked with yeast as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. Present with this bread seven male lambs each a year old without defect, one young bull and two young rams, or two rams. They will be a burnt offering to the Lord together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Last segment. Then sacrifice one male goat for a sin offering and two lambs, each a year old for a fellowship offering. The priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering together with the bread of the first fruits. They are a sacred offering to the Lord for the priest. On the same day, you are to proclaim a sacred assembly and do no regular work. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever, wherever you live. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Last week, on Monday, we had a public holiday. Who, enjoyed, who enjoys public holidays? I enjoyed the sleep in. I had a great time just, you know, and, and was able to sort of do some things. I ripped out a wardrobe in our house and, you know, did some destructive work. And just what I do. It wasn't until, now Jen and I have lived in a few states. So the June public holiday means different things in different settings. And uh, so I actually had to wait for the football fixture to be reminded of what the day was actually for. Not very monarchist of me, is it? <laughs> I've actually gotten to the place, I actually believe that our public holiday system now, we are better at celebrating our sleep-ins, our DIY projects, our Bunnings trips, our holidays, than we are at the actual public holiday it was intended for in the first place. No matter what it is in Australian society, I, you know, yeah, a bit of Australia Day, a bit of patriotism comes up, um, you know, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a chest puffy sort of thing for Anzac Day, but for the most part, we're kind of, yeah, sleep in public holiday, barbecues, chill out. This was not to be the case with ancient Israel in the wilderness, though. There is no legislative council being put together to map these events out. There's no Chamber of Commerce being consulted. There's no penalty rates to discuss, no municipalities and their agendas. No multicultural or politically correct considerations to be made. What we have here is a sovereign holy king personally decreeing to his holy people how to make holy use of their time. As their king, God knows exactly what both his people and the land they will inhabit needs. And the calendar he sets here actually speaks into those needs, both physically and spiritually. There are three key elements to the calendar laid out in this chapter. We've just read about two of those elements. There is a weekly expression and there is a spring festival. 
There's a significant autumn festival as well and we'll look at that briefly shortly. The weekly element, of course, is the Sabbath. This is an observance that was completely distinct to the Jews and frankly, it was an opposite approach to life as they had previously known it in Egypt. They had once been subject to a 24-7 work schedule. Slaves to the systems and the economies of pagan ideals. And they suffered greatly under that sort of regime. But in the wilderness, the Sabbath was becoming a deeply spiritual thing. It was already, by the time we get to Leviticus, it's already been enshrined in the Ten Commandments. Honor the, yeah, keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. It had been practiced since they got over the Red Sea. It was already a capital offense not to do it. It called the believer to reflect deeply on God's created order. God rested on day seven. And he made that day holy well before it was a matter of Mosaic law. And even in Israel's immediate context in the wilderness, God was modelling that himself. He worked the miraculous supply of manna for six days, and on the seventh day he didn't. It was good enough for God to stop, it was good enough for Israel to stop. It called for reflection on God and not themselves. And in Exodus it talks about denying one's self in the process of observing the Sabbath. And we've talked about that about following Jesus. Let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow Jesus, right? We're told here that no work is permitted because frankly only slaves work 24-7. In Exodus even lighting a fire was banned on the Sabbath. And in addition to being a day of rest, we're also told that it is a day of sacred assembly. You didn't need to do big sacrifices at the tabernacle on the Sabbath. But you did have an element of assembled worship going on. You stopped work. You looked after your body with a bit of rest. Now, rest doesn't necessarily mean I sleep in. Rest simply means stopping doing work. Just that alone will actually replenish you. But sleep helps. And you reflected on God's work in your life and how his way is far different to the way things were in Egypt. You'd sit on the Sabbath, you'd look at each other and go, you know what, in Egypt we'd be slaves and we'd be working right now. But here we are resting in God. The spring element is a roughly 50-day cycle around the grain harvest. It starts with a Passover. This is Nisan 14 is the calendar month for the Jewish calendar. Nisan was the first month of the Jewish wilderness calendar. And the 14th day was Passover meal day. Now this reenacts the day where everything changed in Egypt and the salvation of the Lord came through. The Jews were not free from slavery because of anything they had done, frankly, other than walking out of the place. It wasn't because Moses and Aaron were supreme diplomats. It 
wasn't two world powers negotiating in a summit like what we witnessed this week. Then again, there was a lot of promising and reneging going on from Pharaoh, so it might actually turn out to be close. But in all seriousness, Israel was free because the hand of God swept through and judged those around them. And we read that Israel remained safe from that judgment because of blood over the lintel, right? The Passover events brought Pharaoh to his knees and out of that the Jews were free. So this was therefore an act of being saved from slavery by God's hand alone, not their works. Sound familiar? And every year they were to do the same meal and remember that salvation by celebrating that meal in the same method and manner as it was done in Egypt. The seven days after the Passover were sacred days with the commencement of the festival of unleavened bread. These mark the journey of escape from Egypt. Remembering, remembered by a week of eating flatbread without yeast here. This is the idea here. This is the sort of bread that Israel would have eaten while on the run. This is the stuff they wouldn't have had time to let rise. You know how you get bread and you love and let it rise before you bake it and stuff like that? There was no time for that. You needed sustenance. You didn't need artisan bread. You needed stuff to sustain you and keep you energised and get the carbs up and keep running. And the flatbread was exactly that. You ate it in haste, you ate it on the run and the festival of unleavened bread was done that way. You ate unrisen bread in haste. It was a festival reminding them of the urgency in which the escape from slavery actually was. How many know when you are saved from something you escape with urgency? That's what salvation is. When we are saved by grace, we escape with urgency from the Egypt we're saved from. That's the design of being... Our journey out of Egypt is one of urgency and haste because we are suddenly free and we're free to run from that. The offerings in the tabernacle at this time help them remember God's hand in all of this. And it was a festival of remembering the salvation of the Lord. In this festival season, there would also be a reminder of the new things that God was doing for them as well. The holy calendar worked around the harvest with the early barley crops were coming up around the Passover time. So the Passover would take place. The Unleavened Bread Festival started the day after. There was a semi-Sabbath of of sorts. A holy public holiday, if you will. Do no regular work is the order there. And once the Sabbath came and went in that week, there was one extra element. The first part of a new grain harvest offered in thanksgiving to the Lord. Now this was anticipated for when they crossed into the promised land and this was going to happen. This is a first fruits offering being prescribed here out of thanksgiving to the Lord for new harvest, for new things. The pagan religions called for terrible sacrifices and practices before anything was harvested. You needed to perform 
terrible acts in shrines and stuff like that. You would have to make use, avail yourself of, 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 of prostitutes and stuff like that in order to create an environment where your harvest would come through or your crops would come through and that sort of stuff. But God simply called for an offering where things were just starting to be harvested. And he said, just give me the first portion in faith. And then you can reap over the season for your own needs. As God commands this, we need to remember that Canaan was a land that had become defiled. We learnt that a few weeks back. Even the land. So there'd been so much innocent blood being shed on that land that the whole space had become defiled under God. And yet... Israel was going to inherit that land and for it to be blessed, they had to do it God's way. God just said, you know what, continue to trust me in this. And finally, the spring festival season will conclude with the festival of weeks. Seven weeks after the first fruits offering. This is the day where the whole harvest which God made happen in a once-defiled land, would be reflected upon, it would be taken stock of. And it is anticipated here that since God was sovereign and in control, this would be a time of thanksgiving and celebration. This would be a time where a sense of well-being would be springing up among the people. This would therefore be a proper time for a fellowship offering to be made, a peace offering. Not to make peace, but to celebrate peace with God. A peace offering meant that everyone, whether they had a harvest to celebrate or not, could come together to worship God anyway. Peace offerings were a communal meal, a communal feast. Because being prosperous in their setting essentially meant to have enough for oneself and enough for one's neighbour. The exclamation point of that idea is at the end of what we just read. The harvest will be so plentiful that you wouldn't need to pill for the whole patch you had for yourself. But you can leave the outer boundaries for those with little for themselves, those in your midst who couldn't afford a piece of land, those who were essentially refugees in your land. We'll latch on to that in a moment, but I'll quickly explore the autumn festivals with you real briefly. I won't read all the passage out, but I will just go over them basically with you here. Deeper into the chapter, verse 23 to 25 speaks of a festival of trumpets. On the first day of the seventh month, better known to the Jews as Tishri 1. And it falls somewhere in September, October in our own calendars. This again is a lighter Sabbath day, a day of reduced labour or partial stoppage. But at the same time, a call for sacred assembly. It's not all that well fleshed out in this chapter, but it seems to be a signal day to alert the people of what was soon to come. It was like hitting the reset button. They'd gone through business as usual for six months. And now it's time to kind of go, oh gee, let's make ourselves aware of the Lord again. Today, this is celebrated as the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. 
and has been that way since the days of Ezra. Passover was the day of freedom from Egypt. But they celebrated the Festival of Trumpets with Ezra as, as they got out of the, uh, the captivity in that time. The big ones come after that. Verse 26 to 32 speak of the, the next event, which is 10 days later. Once the trumpets are blown and the whole nation had kind of been woken up, the Day of Atonement came about. How many know a nation probably had to be really awake for that one? We've covered that already and we've given a whole sermon to this particular one and we know at this time that it was, a, it was a day that nobody was permitted to simply gloss over. If you read this chapter, it says if you weren't a participant in this, you'd be cut off from the people. The, you, no one in Israel was allowed to be separate from the Day of Atonement. It's a day of cleaning house. Then in verse 33, there's a crescendo of the Autumn Festival, the week-long Festival of Tabernacles. The opening day is a light Sabbath, do no regular work. And then you would have times where people moved out of their homes and actually set up tents and booths to live in for the week. In doing this, they would continually remember the journey they were currently on. And the one they were currently on would not be on forever. There would be a time where that would cease, but the journey would not be forgotten. But even while living in their tents, it would be a time of intense celebration. This wasn't, wasn't a place where you sat in your tent and covered yourself in ash. Instead, verse 40 tells them to cut down luxuriant trees. That's a word, isn't it? Luxuriant. It's palm branches and things like that. Big things that are just flamboyant and loud and, and just you know, waving those around and celebrating in the streets and, and actually enjoying the freedom they have even though they live in booths. So throughout the whole year we see God allocating regular days and weeks for his people to stop working and to creatively and excitedly worship their redeeming king and as they worship they would remember his work in their lives in a number of ways they would remember his salvation they would remember his provision they would remember his covenant with them they would remember his standard to live out in their midst they would remember his forgiveness and they would remember his presence around them at all times if they observed all the festivals And now we have a really amazing Christian perspective to all this, in particular the spring festival season. If you haven't been around faith all that much, hopefully this really excites you. If you've heard all this before, hopefully this really excites you. The exact date of Christ's death is actually still an area of debate because it's a huge task stitching together all the historic writings, both biblical and otherwise. The most settled dates among a number of incredibly gifted theologians today is the first Friday of April in either 30 or 33 AD, but there's a lot of traction towards the latter. Jesus 
would have been at least 36 years old at the time, but could have been as, as high as 40 years old. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul describes Jesus as our Passover lamb. In John's Gospel, Jesus is introduced to the world by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God. And Jesus was crucified on a Friday, which was also Passover. Jesus was crucified on the day that the Jews remembered the gracious salvation of the Lord through blood. If we follow the Levitical standard, the day after the crucifixion was Saturday and it was a high Sabbath. Not just a regular Saturday deal, but in addition to that, a sacred day to mark the beginning of the festival of unleavened bread. Being a Sabbath day, we go in a Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. And the day of the first fruits offering in the temple is that Sunday. A whole new harvest season is being celebrated in advance with the offering and the waving of the first crops emerging in the fields. And it also happens to be the day of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.20 tells us that the risen Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the first of what is to come that we believe in faith. Then we count off seven weeks and celebrate on the day after the Sabbath the festival of weeks. Another offering of the new grain of your harvest. In the time from Moses until Christ, this time had morphed into even more significance than just a grain harvest. The date was celebrated as an anniversary of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. With the emergence of the Greek influence, the festival of weeks got a new name that we know better as in our scriptures, in our New Testaments. Festival of weeks taking place 50 days later, Penty for five, Pentecost becoming the event. On the day both the harvest and the law were celebrated, the one who fulfilled the law would descend on believers. He would write his law on hearts and he would set apart a whole new holy people and ordain them for harvest. The Autumn Believer Festival is a point us to Christ also. I've spent a whole heap of time on the Day of Atonement. We've already looked at that and Hebrews addresses that. We see that Jesus personally speaks into the Feast of Tabernacles and what it meant to his immediate audience. In the first century there was background. There have been profound prophetic statements about the temple in a future age. Ezekiel 47 speaks of water flowing deeply out of the temple courts to both the east and the west to the point that it would fill the Dead Sea and cause life to emerge. 
This idea comes out again in Zechariah 14. In the first century, we know that there was a distinct sense of anticipation going on in Israel. There was an, there was an expectation that the Messiah was not too far off. And, and the whole Pharisee movement and all these different things going on were actually preparation moments. They were doing things to prepare. The, you know, the Pharisees held this view that if the nation was holy enough, the Messiah could come and do something with them. There was, uh, there was all these things going on. And, and you know, you've got baptism going on with, the, you know, with John the Baptist and, and those things and anticipation there, people getting ready that way. And, and you know, you've got Simeon, the prophet, standing in a temple believing he would see the Messiah in his lifetime. There was a bit of fever pitch going on there and there'd been a lot of things going on politically with the Romans and that, feeding that. And these prophetic verses began to feed into that messianic outlook as the teachers tried to work out just what the Messiah would be doing when he arrived. And the water was seen as a metaphor for the Messiah coming out of the temple. On the Feast of Tabernacles, we're told that a practice of taking water and ceremonially pouring it out of the temple courts had become a feature of the festival as a crescendo to the whole festival. On the eighth day of the festival, you had a closing ceremony. In John 7, we're told of this festival taking place and Dale read the verse out earlier. with vibrant chatter about Jesus and the Messiah in the same sentence. Everybody trying to figure out on the day that was now set apart for that purpose. And in the middle of all that fever pitch setting, Jesus speaks and says this, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said with a loud voice, If anyone who was thirsty, let anyone who was thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. After that time, the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. I love this. Where there was messianic expectation, Jesus made his presence felt in a way that resonated with the festival as it was understood when he arrived. Friends, as we look at chapter 23 of Leviticus, simply put, the whole calendar of festivals points to Christ. I'm going to wind up now. But as I do this, I just want to ask a few questions for our own application out of this. If you look at our church bulletins, you'll notice that we really don't keep these dates very well. That's because basically we believe today the set calendar of the law and its festivals, since they point to Christ, is somewhat complete. But I do believe we can take things out of these passages which can add great value to our own faith expression. 
It's actually interesting how the Scriptures interact with these things. The New Testament, the letters, the epistles. In Galatians 4, Paul actually admonishes a largely Gentile church for caving in for people, caving in to Judaizers, people who are trying to go, oh, that's nice, you've got your salvation in Christ, but you know what? Go get your kids circumcised, go and follow these festivals, go and follow all these Jewish things just so you get the thing right and put Jesus with the law. And a lot of people are caving into that. And so Paul's calling him in. Who's bewitched you is the response he says to that. In Romans 14.5, he writes to a church that is quite heavily Jewish. And he actually seems to call for freedom of conscience between the Gentiles and Jews and how they approach those things in that chapter. You know, there are people who do observe those things. Let them be, is what he writes. And if they don't, let them be. So there's a freedom of conscience that we seem to see in amongst all this as well. But we also see throughout the epistles nods of acknowledgement to the festivals and how they speak into our personal makeup. As I point these out, I'm going to offer just a couple of bullet points about how to live out the value of the festivals, even if we don't observe the calendar. As we look at the nods first, this is a no-brainer. Have a good, reflective and God-focused rest. When it comes to the Sabbath, it's not specifically prescribed. Jesus didn't talk it down, but he did talk about being the Lord of it. When he was questioned about how it was practiced and how he seemed to break it with plucking corn off a cob on the way through and in a harvest field or to, to heal or to do different things. He was called out on the Sabbath a number of times and I think Jesus deliberately chose the Sabbath to do some of that work to kind of provoke thought a bit. He described himself as the Lord of the Sabbath. Why? Because he's God. It was the day that he made. It was the day that he set apart. It's the day that he set apart as holy. He knew what it was. but we don't seem to see it forced onto any of the Gentile church. But stopping and resting in God, I believe, is part of the created order. If we look at the Genesis account, we see how life was before the fall and therefore how life will be. Hebrews 4 tells us that a Sabbath rest is coming and we are to make every effort to enter that rest. We get too close at times to the slavery of a 24-7 work cycle. Some of it is because we have unhealthy boundaries. Some of it is either the process of work or the result of it becoming an idol. As in we become workaholics or we sell ourselves out for what we're accumulating or building. We're seeing all sorts of reports coming out now about how destructive to both home and health 
that attitude can be nowadays if we simply just don't stop. God rested before it was law. So I believe the Sabbath that God and the seventh day that God kept holy was a good model for us today that actually helps us live in a way that anticipates what is to come. So have time for rest and look for ways of making that rest sacred. Don't waste it all on a sleep in, but do things to reflect on what God is doing. Second, find a way to reflect on the ways the festivals speak to our own needs. Because these things actually met a need in God's people. And Christ's completion of these things met a need for us too. But also shows us stuff about our own natures that we probably need to remember about ourselves as well. Think about this. We needed a Passover. We were headed for judgment. We were on track to facing the wrath of God for ourselves with nothing to bring in defence. We cannot offer anything, no smooth talk, no promises, no diplomacy, no action, no work to escape the slavery of sin we're in or the Egypt we're living in. We needed blood over the lintels and Jesus provided that for us. And there are ways we can act in response to that. One, hastily escape once you're now free. And two, 1 Corinthians 5 speaks not only of Christ as the Lamb, but he also gives a nod to the preparation before the meal took place, where the house will be carefully inspected and cleansed from yeast. We need a Passover and we have it in Christ. And Paul adds to that a call to clean house of all yeast. He calls it wickedness, immorality and malice. And we have unleavened bread to eat in haste and Paul calls it sincerity and truth. So there's a Passover and there is a response to that that we can still make today. It's a no-brainer to say that we need a Pentecost too. A celebration and a reminder of harvest. And we need an equipping for it too. Our Pentecost can happen all year for us. And it is simply close and intimate interaction with the Holy Spirit. Out of this interaction, we become equipped for service in loads of ways. And we're even given unique spiritual gifts as well, if you ask. And we're told in Scripture by both Christ and the others that it is okay to ask. We need to remember that we're still a pilgrim people and the Feast of Tabernacles helps us reflect on that. It was first remembered as the time of the wilderness the place between Egypt and the Promised Land where the, and they were learning to become a holy people in that in-between place. 
to live out any more glorified than pilgrim as a believer means we're probably living in an erroneous theology called triumphalism. We're not in the promised land yet. Paul calls out Corinth for celebrating that a little bit too early in their expression. You're ruling and you're reigning already. You're living like you've already arrived and that is not where it's at. You see, if we think we've arrived, we stop growing. We stop being pilgrims, we stop making progress. See what I did there? We don't move anywhere. We don't grow any, we don't mature any more than we already do if we think erroneously that we have arrived. We are still pilgrims, friends. Paul called his own life one of simply living in a tent. I'm gonna, and he's going to trade in the tent for glory. That should be our mindset too. And yet, even in that tent setting, there's still plenty to rigorously celebrate anyway, right? We're saved, we're set apart, we're a distinct people, we're free from Egypt, we're headed to a place of promise. And God's presence is in us and in our midst even before that promise comes in full. And I'm going to wind up just this last thing. We don't have a mandated Sabbath nowadays, I don't believe. But I do believe Leviticus shows us the value of the eighth day. There are nine instances of the eighth day mentioned in Leviticus to mark different moments. And there's one uh, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. That crescendo where Jesus said, let everyone come and drink, was actually the eighth day of the festival. Something taking place on the seventh day speaks of completion. But in Scripture, the eighth speaks of something completely and excitingly new. The first fruits offering took place on an eighth day. The day of Pentecost fell on the eighth day. The closing ceremony of the Feast of Tabernacles was an eighth day. Jesus rose on an eighth day. The Spirit descended on believers on an eighth day. Jesus made a very clear messianic call on the eighth day. And the early believers seemed to have a habit, particularly after the Jews cut them off, of meeting together to worship on the eighth day. The Monday, the Sunday, instead of the Saturday. We read about that in Acts, when Paul is preaching in Troas. We read about it when he calls for the Jerusalem offering in 2 Corinthians on the first day of the week. Set your cash aside so we can bless that city. Why? Because they're gathered to worship those days. There's a sacred value in the newness of seasons in our lives. Sometimes we have spiritual eighth day moments where all of a sudden we've kind of 
come to completion and realize that God has completely cleaned house or done something to us complete and all of a sudden a new season emerges in our life. That's an eighth day. We need to see those things as sacred at times. A new season of ministry can be that. A, a, a new opportunity in life. A, new, a lot of things can be that. New chapters. But there's also a tremendous value in what we do today as we worship together as well. This is an eighth day expression, not a seventh day Sabbath expression. Otherwise, we would have met yesterday. In these gatherings, we can see a sacred thing that God is doing. We can treat these days as God always doing something new. So why don't we revel in those and see the value. Let's value what the Lord is doing at all times. Let's allow all the festivals of the Old Testament and their completion in the new. Let them all feed into the rhythms of our own faith lives today as well. I'm going to leave it there. I'll close this off in prayer. If the Lord wants to speak to you, we're going to give him space to do that. And I'll invite the band up now to come and lead us in worship to finish out the morning.